0: Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News From Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to The Science Podcast for May second, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about crop yields and climate change, and David Grimm is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for The Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing
1: science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org.
0: The Silk Road was an overland route that connected Asia with the West for centuries, carrying just about everything from traded goods to religious ideas to the plague. Similarly, the Maritime Silk Road linked China with places as far away as Yemen and Kenya. I spoke with Mara Vistendal about recent excavations along this watery path and some unexpected political implications.
1: From the 10th to roughly the 10th to the 15th century, China was fairly outward looking and ships started exploring routes that have been pioneered by Arab and South Asian traders. They set sail from Guangzhou and Quanzhou, which were major ports in China, moved west across the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean up into the Persian Gulf, and they carried porcelain and silk, which were highly in demand at the time. There were a number of ships that wrecked in this area. So it's now a rich place for archaeologists to
0: look And one of the ongoing excavations on the Maritime Silk Road is a truly ambitious underwater archaeological project. Can you describe some of the technological feats used to get this ship out from under the water?
1: Before this story, I went to Hailing, which is an island off the coast of Guangdong Province, And there now is an entire ship on display, which has been pulled up from the seafloor. It's a wreck from the Song Dynasty, which is from the 10th to 13th centuries. The interesting thing about the ship is that it was discovered in 1987, which was quite early for China at the time, really didn't have much foundation in the natural sciences and and certainly in underwater archaeology. There were no underwater archaeologists at the time. And they didn't have the funding or the capacity to deal with the ship. So decades passed, and then finally in 2007, got enough funding and enough expertise to raise the entire vessel from the seafloor. To do that, it's not an easy task at all. They had designed a... 530-ton steel container that was lowered down to the seafloor. And then the ship was kind of slid inside that container and then raised up to the water, then pulled into the shore. And then at around the same time, they'd been timing construction of a museum to coincide with the ship arriving on shore. And so when it arrived, it was pulled along this platform and finally delivered to the museum. So now it's there.
0: uh, It's in a special aquarium that's calibrated to have the proper conditions for, for a wreck of this age. When you say it's in an aquarium, you mean that it's actually in water?
1: Yeah, so the ship is in around six meters of water right now, and it was raised along with the sediment that's encasing it. So, because there is a thick layer of sediment over the ship, it's believed to be in very good condition. So, now archaeologists are beginning to excavate this ship, which is inside this container, and the water is there to preserve the conditions that you would have had when it was still underwater. And this is highly unusual. This is really the first time you've had an excavation on this scale where the entire ship has been raised. Normally, archaeologists would do the excavation underwater, of course.
0: Really interesting. A lot of the research you discuss is related to Zheng He. Z-H-E-N-G-H-E. What do we know about this 15th century seafarer?
1: So Zheng He was an incredibly influential seafarer at the time of the Maritime Silk Road. Uh, Some people call him an explorer, but he was actually traveling routes that had been pioneered by others. But what's notable is that he headed a fleet uh, that was absolutely massive, so as many as 250 ships, in his armada, and the boats themselves were incredibly large. They dwarfed the the ships of Columbus Mm -hmm. and other European explorers at the time. So he traveled the route from China through Southeast Asia. He even got as far as Malindi, which is now Kenya. His legacy is now being hotly debated, but for China, it's... An interesting thing to explore because they can argue that Zhang Hu got to these countries and did not colonize, so that he's actually an example of a kind of non aggressive foreign policy very early on. And so today, using archaeology, parallels are being drawn to
0: China's present day foreign policy <laughs> endeavors. Really interesting. And this interest in underwater archaeology from China is actually kind of following his path all the way to Africa. What's going on uh, in Kenya or at least in the ocean right next to it?
1: We know that Zhenghu's fleet got to Lumindi, what is now Kenya, in. 1418, 80 years before Vasco Gama rounded the Cape of Good Hope. Today it's a very attractive place for Chinese archaeologists to work because of this history and so there's a project that's actually directly funded by the central government that was initially driven by the hope of finding a wreck from Zheng He's fleet off the coast of Kenya. So far the archaeologists have only found local wrecks But we have found coins and porcelain that bears the imprint of the Chinese imperial kiln. And so that suggests that there was Chinese trade at the time of Zheng He's era. And it establishes a pretty firm connection.
0: There's also some debate about whether or not human beings from that fleet went to Kenya. Was there any backing for that?
1: No, this is all kind of mythology that's grown around the interest in Zheng He. So there's been a big revival, everything from soap operas to big restaging of his voyages. One of his ships is now being reconstructed. And the archaeologist I spoke with said that, you know, a lot of this really has no basis in fact. Mm -hmm. Definitely what he did was remarkable. But first of all, the argument that he was non-aggressive is is not true. He was an admiral and his, his ships projected the size and scale that historians believe would suggest a military fleet. There's evidence in historical texts of battles that happened in various countries. It's not quite as peaceful as he's being portrayed.
0: Is that the reason, is this fascination with Zheng He actually the reason there's so much expansion in underwater archaeology in China and around China?
1: No, there are a lot of different factors at play. So one is that the South China Sea is really the hot area in the world now for looting. So there are a lot of wrecks there and they haven't been explored historically, um, there's probably hundreds of wrecks just in, in Chinese waters. And for China, you know, many of these ships are Chinese or are carrying Chinese artifacts, so they're sort of as natural interests. And this push is coming at a time when there's a growing interest in heritage management among Chinese, so people are becoming interested in the past. So that's part of it, is that there's a lot of popular support for this. It's also coming at a time when China is trying to stake a claim to certain disputed territories in the South China Sea. And some people I spoke with think that there is a kind of ulterior motive at play and that it's significant that China is doing archaeology in areas where it also has territorial disputes.
0: You talk about this as something that China is doing, which is unusual when you think about the way research works in a lot of other parts of the world. Is this especially government finance as as opposed to other kinds of research going on in China?
1: There's a lot of government funding for all kinds of research in China. I think what's significant is that in underwater archaeology, in other countries, it's not traditionally an area where the government would step up and provide ample funding. So China is now building a dedicated underwater archaeology ship that's going to set sail in the next few months. And that's something that few, if any, countries have around the world.
0: Mara, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Mara Vistendahl is a science news writer based in Shanghai. She writes about a resurgence in marine archaeology in this week's issue. Finally, David Grimm is here. He's the editor for our daily news site and author of a new book, *Citizen Canine: Our Evolving Relationship with Cats and Dogs*. And shockingly, we only have one animal story to talk to, (laughs) to talk about today. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on finding your way to the fair two thousand years ago. The Nazca people of Peru are famous for their giant drawings, earth and stone constructs best viewed from the sky. Such markings are also called geoglyphs, and the Nazca weren't the only ones making them. So, Dave, what do we know about the Paracas people and their geoglyphs?
2: Well, they had something that seems kind of similar. They had these very mysterious lines in the desert. Now, these lines didn't seem to form any sort of patterns, like a monkey face or some of the other patterns you see with the Nazca lines. But they all seemed kind of like landing strips. When viewed from above, these very bright or maybe used to be very bright white lines that seem to be leading in a particular direction.
0: And so one of the big issues with looking at formations of this kind, besides figuring out what they're for, is how old they are and dating them because they're made of dirt and stone, not organic matter. How did the researchers overcome this problem?
2: Well, what they found was associated with these lines, there were these mounds. And when they did some closer inspection of the mounds, they found organic matter, which they dated, and the dates came back from about 400 to 100 BCE, which is about the time the Paracas people dominated the region. So that, that helped them really date where all the stuff came from.
0: Once they had the dates in hand, were they able to then match up the purpose of these lines?
2: What they did was they mapped out all the lines and the mounds. They played kind of a, an ancient game of connect the dots. And what they found was that these lines seemed to connect ancient villages to these mounds.
0: And so the mounds weren't where the people were living?
2: That's right. And what the researchers speculate is these mounds were actually ancient fairgrounds. These are places where people would gather to trade goods, to acquire livestock, to even find mates to marry. So this was a very important social gathering place that would have been outside of typical village life.
0: And it actually had an astronomical element to it. Can you talk about that?
2: Well, when the researchers did a little bit more investigating, they found that when you stand behind the mounds when you're facing the sunset, and if you're there at the right time of the year, for example, the winter solstice, the sun sets right on the mound. And as one of the researchers say, if you're a human being standing there, the sun melts right on your head. (laughs) Next up, we
0: have the story on the scent of a woman. Last week, we had a story on how mice fare differently in scientific studies, depending on whether the researcher handling them was male or female, and they were just basing this on smell alone. But can humans smell the difference between the sexes? So, Dave, humans have odors, odors relating to whether they're male or female. What's the problem here?
2: Sometimes when we talk about odors, especially odors that other animals sense, we call them pheromones. And these have been shown to be very powerful in the animal kingdom. Other animals use pheromones to decide who to mate with, maybe who to avoid. It can even influence other aspects of their behavior. But it's long been thought that humans, even though we can sense a variety of things, we don't really pick up on these pheromones, or at the very least, they don't alter our behavior. And what this new study set out to show was that actually they can alter our behavior and that humans may use pheromones just like other animals do.
0: And there are candidate pheromones, chemicals that carry this kind of information. What are they?
2: There are a couple in humans, and just to be simple, I'll call them by their short names. One is called andro and the other one called estra. And men secrete andro in their sweat and their semen. And estra is primarily found in female urine. Now, previous studies have shown that we can actually pick up on these odors, but it's been less clear whether they actually influence our behavior.
0: Okay, so in the study setup, who had to smell what and what was measured after the smelling?
2: (laughs) Well, one of the coolest things about the study was the video they used. And if you've ever seen motion capture dots, they basically took a video of what looked like men and women walking, with some of the figures having this very feminine gait, some of the figures having a very masculine gait, and some of the figures having a very neutral gait. And all the subjects could see were these moving dots. They couldn't actually determine the gender of the person that was walking. And what they found was that when the subjects smelled the andro, they judged this neutral figure as more masculine when they smell the estra, they judge the figure, the walk, as more feminine. And the results depended on the viewer's sexuality. So heterosexual women and gay men perceive this gender neutral stride as more masculine after smelling andro, whereas estra didn't have an effect on them.
0: So this isn't a case where you know, the subjects are smelling two shirts side by side and able to say this is from a man and this is from a woman. What does this result actually suggest about pheromones, though?
2: Well, it suggests that these smells can actually influence our perceptions of gender, which you can imagine is very important when you're looking for a mate.
0: Finally, we have a story on how birds survived the dinosaur apocalypse. Birds descended from dinosaurs, but which dinosaurs they came from turns out to be an important clue in figuring out why they actually survived so long. So Dave, what do we know about the dinosaurs that birds descended from?
2: Well, this was a group of dinosaurs named Manoraptorins, and this included feathered dinosaurs like Velociraptor. One of the really fascinating things about this group of dinosaurs, especially the lineage that gave rise to birds, is they seem to be really the only vestige of dinosaurs we have left in our modern world. All other dinosaurs went extinct, and the question is, why did this lineage survive when everything else disappeared?
0: A lot of the dinosaurs got very big in a short period of time, but... The Manoraptorans didn't follow that same pattern.
2: As anybody who's watched a uh, dinosaur movie knows, dinosaurs could get very, very large, sometimes up to 90,000 kilograms. But what was interesting about the maniraptorans was that they really diversified in size. So some of them got big, but some of them also got very small. And that seems to have been, especially that small size, it seems to have been what really saved them in the end.
0: And so how did the researchers go about examining this more closely?
2: Well, the researchers looked at 426 different dinosaur species to really get a sense of how the size of many of these species changed over time. And that's when they noticed that the maniraptorans, especially had a very diverse range of sizes. And this is important because when the asteroid hit, the asteroid that's suspected to have killed off most of the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago, most of them went extinct because they weren't very adaptable. Especially if you're very large, you have very high energy needs. You've got to eat a lot of stuff. You can't be very adaptable in terms of where you can go. But if you've got a very small bird-like animal that doesn't require a lot of food to survive, that can, because it can fly and inhabit a lot of different environments, then you've got a creature that's much more adaptable. And that's probably why birds were able to survive the dinosaur apocalypse.
0: Okay, what else is on the site this
2: week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about adding some new letters, potentially, to the genetic code. Also a story about how a new massive computer simulation is giving some insight into the evolution of the universe. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a mega marine reserve is going off limits to commercial fishing. Also a story about the latest news on the MERS virus that seems to be spreading in the Middle East. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the May 5th, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.